Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Welcome to Hashing It Out, a podcast where we talk to the tech innovators behind blockchain infrastructure and decentralized networks. We dive into the weeds to get at why and how people build this technology and the problems they face along the way. Come listen and learn from the best in the business so you can join their ranks. Welcome back, everybody. Episode 39, Hashing It Out. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Corey Petty, and I am here with my trusty co-host, Colin Couchet. Say hello, everybody. Hello, everybody. Today, we have a nice guest, a smart guest, a doctor, fellow PhD, but this one actually has a PhD in cryptocurrencies. I don't know if that's the exact correct title of what his PhD in, but he's one of the first, I'd say, to get his PhD in his technology. Uh, Dr. Patrick McCory, uh, do you want to start us off by giving us a quick introduction as to how you got into the space, introduced, and what you're currently working on? Yeah, so um, I got introduced in this space back in 2013. So I took this cryptography module during my undergraduate, and cryptography was the hardest module I took. But it was really exciting because, you know, crypto is like wizardry. And then when I discovered cryptography, I met my soon-to-be advisor, and I said, Fong Hao, I want to do a PhD in this area. Can you help me with that? And then he told me about this thing called Bitcoin that's being used in the dark web that's called this cryptocurrency and I should go look at it. So I went on these blog posts, the news articles, I went in the chat rooms, you know, Bitcoin dev, Bitcoin wizards, and I sort of just got hooked. I mean, there's not very much cryptography in it, so that was a bit of a waste. But uh, <laughs> back then, you know, it was this dodgy, weird internet money that nobody took seriously. So yeah, that's why I got into this space. And over the past five years, it's just been so exciting to see just, you know, the evolution of it. Like, for example, when I started my PhD, there were two professors who warned me against it. They said, Paddy, you're a talented student. You know, you could have a really good PhD. Why are you wasting your time in this great internet money that no one's going to take seriously? Then during my Viva, yeah, yeah, during my Viva one or two years ago, one of the, the same professor during my exam, he said, Paddy, you were right. You know, you're, a, you're <laughs> in Bitcoin at just the right time. How vindicated. Yeah, I got like the other one that never acknowledged it, but the, one of them did. And I was so happy about that. So I, I just got really lucky in terms of the topic. I mean, back then there were very few people doing this. I think there was like four or five real papers on the area. Uh, and yeah, and since over the years, I guess I've just been, I think nowadays I'm more, mostly focused on like layer two scaling off chain protocols. And I've just been trying to work out, you know, what is this going to look like in five years time? You know, is off chain going to take off or the lightning network take off or plasma take off and how will all these sort of work together? I think a, a common misconception about layer two solutions is that um, they're competing and that one size fits all for a lot of them. And I think that's the exact opposite case for a lot of these things. And you've pointed this out in some of your recent papers and that like, what are the applicable applications of state channels and like what, like what type of, you know, maybe social contexts or, or, or engagements between people are appropriate for these types of solutions and not one size fits all. And in fact, more often than not, we'll probably see a combination of these things in actual practice further down the line. Do you agree with that? Yes. So let me, how could I take that away? So I think there's like two or three competing solutions. I mean, when I say competing, they're not really competing. I'll get to that. There's off-chain channels, 
or the idea there's that there's these small group of parties, two, three, four people, and they just want to run a smart contract locally amongst themselves. They don't want to interact with the network. They don't want to pay transaction fees. They don't want the block latency. You know, you don't want to wait around for 10 minutes for your transaction to get confirmed. So they do this in an off-chain channel. So that's really exciting. You know, there's instant finality. It's really fast, and it's actually free for people to run. The first application for this was payments. You know, I every time maybe I set up a payment channel with YouTube, they send me a kilobyte, I give them a Satoshi. And we can do this at rapid speed. So that's the idea of a channel. So that's one solution people are working on. Payment channels are for payments. State channels so far tend to look at more applications. So can we do auctions, poker, rock, paper, scissors, tic-tac-toe? And I'll get to that in a bit, I guess. The other competing solution is more called a commit chain. Where basically you have this non-custodial operator. So everyone here could be one today. You could run this commit chain. And the idea is that they just listen for transactions. There's thousands of users. They send me all the transactions. And I do a checkpoint on the blockchain. So I commit the thousands of transactions. Now, what's really exciting about these commit chains is that while it's not instant, you know, you have to wait for the checkpoint, it's all off-chain. And there's this non-custodial operator who's just in charge of you know confirming transactions and routing payments. So they're the two main off-chain flavors at the moment, off-chain channels for a small group of parties, and this commit chain that has a non-custodial operator, but it can support millions of users. That's, that's, more that's like what Plasma people typically refer like to as Plasma, Plasma correct? Yeah, well, exactly. in the Ethereum space, yeah. yeah. Yes, in the Ethereum space. And this is actually why I'm really excited for layer two in Ethereum. The issue in Bitcoin for three or four years is that every time they try to build payment channels, you know, for example, the very first payment channel is a one-way payment channel from Alice to Bob. Alice can send coins to Bob and they don't go back. But the issue there was that one, it's one way, and two, there's an expiry time. So it has to expire by time T. They remove the expiry time and the support bidirectional payments. When you look at the protocol level, it looks like they're sort of trying to beat Bitcoin in submission to make it to do something Bitcoin really doesn't want to do. And that's actually really frustrating from a protocol developer, you know, protocol design perspective. Where in the Ethereum world with these smart contracts, it's so much easier to build these non-custodial layer two protocols. So payment channels are really easy. Non-custodial off-chain smart contracts are really easy. And now we can build stuff like Plasma. That is just not possible in Bitcoin today. Do you see, do you see any type of uh, future development? I mean, it, it, the history has shown us that changing protocol level things inside Bitcoin uh, is quite difficult or slow or turns into a contentious hard fork of some sort. Do you see them yeah, yeah. moving forward into being able to do these types of things? So the issue today in Bitcoin is that we have the Lightning Network, and that's mm -hmm. really exciting. You know, there's 30,000 channels out there. People appear to be using it. But because of the way Bitcoin's designed, Lightning doesn't really work that well. So one, you know, if, I, if you and I agree a payment, we've already chosen the transaction fee we're going to use in the future. If there's congestion, I can't close the channel anymore because the fee isn't good enough. The other issue is that every off-chain protocol assumes there's this watchtower or third party who can watch the, you know, watch the channel in your behalf. Watchtower doesn't really work in Bitcoin today. And that's just because of the way Lightning's designed and because of a side effect of Bitcoin's current model. So I think fixing that issue is going to take two years in Bitcoin. Can you go I into what that issue actually is a little bit? Um, yeah, yeah, I can explain it. So this is how Lightning works in it, okay? Lightning has two components. There's a channel between two parties. They can do payments back and forth. The second component is a conditional transfer. And that's used to synchronize a payment across several channels. 
Now, the issue comes down to the channel itself. How do we do a payment in Lightning? What we do is the following. There's two parties, and they basically, maybe Alice wants to pay Bob. Bob. In the first step, they agree the new state of the channel. You know, the new balance of Alice and Bob. They both sign it, they both agree to the new state, they're happy. The second step is that they need to revoke the old state. To do that, they'll exchange some special secrets. Now, because of this two-step process of committing to the new state and revoking the old one, what you actually end up is, is one current state that's valid and that can be broadcast to the network at any time. And now you end up with a set of revoked transactions. If these transactions are ever broadcast to the network, you know, it's an old transaction that should never get in. So the way Lightning gets around this is that if I broadcast an old revoked transaction, there's now this dispute process or time period for the counterparty, Bob, to prove that it was revoked and prove that it was invalid. We call this a justice transaction. So if I broadcast an old state, Bob can broadcast a justice transaction, prove to the blockchain that it was revoked, penalize me, and steal all the coins in the channel. Now, the issue here is that because of the way the transaction model works in Bitcoin, you need to keep this secret around or this justice transaction around for every single channel update. You know, we do a thousand payments. As the user, I have to store 1,000 secrets. So as a user, I can compress this a bit. But if I want to hire a third-party watchtower, they can't just hold the secret. You know, they can't, brought, they can't sign a transaction on my behalf to put the secret on the blockchain. So this watchtower has to store a justice transaction for every single state update in my channel. If I do 1,000 payments, they have to store 1,000 justice transactions. So it's order and scaling. Mm -hmm. And that's really frustrating from a, you know, a design perspective. Where in Ethereum, we don't have that problem at all. But there's a setup process. Oh, what? Uh, Sorry? I'm just, just to riff off that a little yeah, bit. There's yeah, yeah. a setup process here already in, innately in Lightning. Could it benefit from a zero-knowledge uh, storage, a, a zero-knowledge proofs yeah, instead of... Um, I don't think zero knowledge is the right tool here. What you really want to do is, if you consider the state of the channel, which is basically both parties' balance, you know, Alice's balance and Bob's balance, that's the state of the channel. You know, that should be separate from the transaction. We're right now in Bitcoin and Ethereum, and they're both combined. Oh, yeah, sorry, I was being called there. So basically, the issue is that the state and the transaction are, are intertwined and combined in Bitcoin. If the watchtower wants to broadcast the latest state or revoke a state, they actually have to broadcast a pre-signed transaction. Where if they were separated, you know, the watchtower could send a new transaction, put the required information in, and then broadcast that to the network. And is that's this, what we do in Ethereum. Is this like contingent upon all UTXO-based models? No. no. So there's a special opcode you could use called maybe up check say message verify or something mm -hmm. where you could put in a pre-signed message, and then the transaction will know how to evaluate that. I but see. right now, that's not in Bitcoin. Okay. That's yeah. good to know then. Well, what do you, like, part of your, like, I think it'd be interesting to know what are good applications of state channels? Yeah. Well, let's get into state channels first, because we just yeah. talked about payment channels pretty yeah. deeply right. here. So, like, what what is a state channel? Actually, that's apparently, based off your SPC talk, a very complicated question. It what is, is a yeah. state channel? Um, and I don't want your answer. I kind of want to know, like, from the you know how things have evolved to the point where we are today, and where you're where you think we're going with this. 
Yeah, let me give you some context for that. So last year we organized a master workshop called, you know, Off the Chain. Because what what I basically this time last year, I was in Cafe Nero and I was like, there's seven teams working on state channels, but we don't talk to each other. You know, we have no interaction with each other. So why don't we all go to Berlin? We go to this conference and we present our solutions one after another. So then we can all work out what we're working on and like what we're doing differently. So we all came to Berlin and we did our talks. When I watched every talk, I realized we're all basically doing the exact same thing, but we just have different terminology and terminology and definitions. So it was actually really hard for us all to communicate because we don't agree on a common language. So that was like basically why I think we don't have the same definitions. But at a high level, state channels are all the same. The idea is that there's a group of parties and parties, they're small. And what they can do is lock up collateral on the blockchain. You know, I lock in coins, you lock in coins. And now that we're locked in coins, we've opened the channel. Now, what I could do in this channel is actually install a smart contract. So this could be a bottle ship game. This could be chess. This could be tic-tac-toe or an auction. And now you and I can start running this smart contract off the chain locally between ourselves without ever interacting with the network. And that's really exciting. And then if basically if one person stops cooperating, you know, they stop signing state updates, then I can trigger a dispute, I can close the channel, and I could redeploy the smart contract on the blockchain and just finish the execution there at a high level. That's roughly what most people are doing. Yeah, it's just a way of offloading um, or the burden of trading personal state between two parties. And yeah, and if there's the, the fact that it has a dispute process is what makes it viable. It's like, okay, something happened, I can take it to the blockchain to be the arbiter of the situation and continue there. Yes, I think there's two ways to like generalize that. I think one, all off-chain protocols, the way they scale the network is just by reducing the load. You know, we don't do much more. We just reduce the load and optimistically, we never talk to the network. This dispute process is common between most off-chain protocols. And the dispute process is just there to guarantee integrity. You know, if one of us stop cooperating, we can always guarantee the channel will run as expected. The smart contract will always run as a shoot. You know, you can never submit an invalid state, for example. If we're playing chess and you try to pretend you won, the dispute protest guarantees this integrity between us and for the smart contract. So just to be clear, are state channels intended to be single party or dual party, I guess, two people talking to each other? Because all the examples up to this point have been pretty much like one-on-one. -on -one. But uh, is there a multi-party solution to this? Is there something yeah. that... So the work we've done on sprites in Kitsune and in all of our state channel research, we can do multi-party out of the box. So, but the problem with state channels is that what applications actually make sense? And this comes back, to, I guess, to the original question. And this is sort of going to hopefully allude to why multi-party doesn't always make sense. The requirement for a state channel is that one, all the parties are known in advance. Maybe you can add a party later on, but that's a lengthy process. And two, every party has to remain online and willing to sign state updates throughout the entire application's lifetime. So if we're playing poker, I beat you at poker, you probably have to remain online and keep signing state updates, even though you've already lost. It's very hard for us to kick you out of the channel. You might not just cooperate with us to do that. Uh, so that's like the main issues with state channels. And this actually restricts the type of applications we can do. I think for me, I sort of have a different opinion than most people. So a lot of the state channel companies are working on rock, paper, scissors, tic-tac-toe, go, 
sort of the demo of their frameworks and software. But I don't know many people who want to play tic-tac-toe on the blockchain. You know, is that well, really a casino complaint? games are probably the most viable options for these types of things yeah. because there's money on the line and people are incentivized to stay there and also win money. Exactly. So actually, casino games is one of the first applications of Bitcoin. So Tachi Dice was from 2011, mm-hmm. 2012. And that got really popular in Bitcoin then. I think maybe Luke Jr. started complaining at them and they took it off. <laughs> yeah, I, I vaguely remember that. But yeah, so casino games can make sense. But actually, now there's this new problem for casino games. As a casino, I have to lock up collateral, and that's the maximum collateral you can win as a player. So this is like a poker, maybe like a gambling game. I'd have to put down $1,000 as a casino, and you can only win up to $1,000. And then either I have to put more money in, or we close the channel, whatever. But that's like a practical limitation there. I think what state channels are going to be really useful for is sort of like auctions. You know, maybe you want to, maybe Google are selling adverse space in real time. We could do really lightning fast auctions using state channels. That would be really cool, and no one's ever done that yet. But I also think it just really simplifies building payment channels. It's so much easier to build a payment channel within a state channel and do really cool, fair exchange protocols on top of that. Because really, a payment channel is a state channel, but it's a yeah. very specific, like you, it's like, like a specific target use case. When when you the reason when I hear the word state channel, I I think general state channel because there's 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 i mean just creating a state channel is something you could do but creating this general framework for building any state channel is kind of the ultimate goal here um so so it's kind of interesting to me that that uh you know um that we keep talking about these payment channels when ultimately all they're doing is exchanging state um so the reason i brought up the multi-party thing is because i kind of wanted to know if and this is something that's kind of uh, interesting to me is when I think scalability, I, I don't think one-on-one peer-to-peer. A lot of people are still kind of looking at that side of things, but I look at this sort of layered approach where we're not not everybody's going to want to directly have interaction with the blockchain itself, and that things are just going to want to start building on top of each other. And the only way I see that we can validate that kind of stuff is by having as many parties as possible participating in layer two direct layer interaction with the blockchain solutions and having people then create their own state channels from state channels. And I'm wondering, is that vision something that's actually possible? I think yes and no. So I think state channels as they're designed today are not going to be fantastic for millions of users. I mean, in isolation, they only work for two or three parties. You can build this network of channels, but they they come up with a bunch of problems in terms of the collateral lockup, trying to build virtual channels to run smart contracts. I think what we're going to have is a combination. So first, I think we'll have this channel-based network, like Lightning, or using state channels. But then I think we're going to have those commit chains coming back, like Plasma and NoCust and StarkPay. And this will be for millions of users. And in the ideal world, anyone could run a commit chain. Anyone could run a Plasma Hub. You don't need to lock up any money to run a Plasma Hub. And I think that's where we'll end up getting millions of users. So most payments will probably happen on Plasma. And this channel-based network will just be there to transfer coins from one hub to the next hub to the next hub to the next hub. That's sort of my future vision of how all this is going. I see. And um, would state channels be able to hook into these these uh, like plasma chains or something yeah. like that? They... Yeah, you could run a state channel on a plasma chain as well. So one of the problems that we talked about with Georgios in a previous podcast was the fact that smart contracts weren't running on, um, wouldn't, wouldn't be able to execute directly on 
a uh, a plasma chain. Um, but... I, can, I can explain why. Okay, go for it. So the problem of all the plasma approaches right now, and I've already told these guys this, is that the, the plasma chain relies on the UTXO model. So all the plasma chains look like Bitcoin. So UTXO, limited scripting facility, they don't make sense for running smart contracts. So that's really frustrating from a design perspective. So they're using the wrong tools or data structures there. What they really want to use is something like NoCust. So NoCust is done by Arthur Gervis, part of the liquidity network. And what's really cool there is that every checkpoint they do on the blockchain, one, it commits to the list of transactions, but it also commits to the state of the network as an account-based model, just like Ethereum. And something like NoCust has much more potential for running smart contracts or building state channels on top of. Because now I could commit to the state of a channel, I could then do a dispute on the blockchain and then withdraw my channel away from the block away from the blockchain and so, then running on Ethereum. So you're saying basically the 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 the, the method in which they're building minimum viable plasma is actually may hurt them in the future for building smart contracts on top of them yeah. because of the UTXO base they started with. Yep. Which Definitely. is interesting because that was a part of the original paper. Uh, the two, th the three things that 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 were interesting about that paper was the cordon rule. So you could go uh, plasma chains have plasma chains have plasma chains. Um, which isn't they the case had, right It was all what's that? Which isn't the yeah, case right now. Which isn't the case anymore, right? They had to they had to throw that out. Um, and the um, the execution of smart contracts going all the way down and up. Um, uh, these these layers of plasma chains and just it, just having them on the main chain was kind of an essential part of that. And then lastly was the fact that it used UTXO uh, was a major major selling point um, originally. And now it sounds like the actual that that actually is a root cause for the other parts of the vision sort of degrading over time. Yeah, that's interesting. Exactly. Yeah, so there's a guy called so normally Arthur gets most of the attention, but it's actually the student Rami. Rami's light years ahead of most people in our community. He's really pumping out these amazing papers for plasma chains. And I don't think he gets enough credit for that. If you actually read what they're doing, I imagine in a year or two, they'd probably have smart contracts running on a, on a, on a non-custodial commit chain. Oh, wow. Maybe we should get him on the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but, okay, so we kind of gotten, gotten on to the... Uh, we're talking layer two, obviously, but your, your specialty is actually state channels. So... Um, can you talk, describe to us some of the work that's being done in this space and the work that you're doing? For state channels? Um, I guess a lot of the work is sort of, how do you describe state channels? So in terms of research at the moment, building a state channel isn't hard. We all know how to build state channels. And actually, like the state channel people have had meetings recently. And what we basically discover is that there's all these five or six teams doing exactly the same thing. They have like minor tweaks on how their protocol works, but they're all basically building very similar frameworks. So maybe that's good from a compatibility perspective, but it's also just annoying that we have several teams building the same thing. You know, we only need one team to build the, the actual framework. Uh, so from a research perspective, we knew how to build state channels. And we contributed to that in 2017. That was mostly Andrew Miller. I helped Andrew with it. He proposed one of the first state channel constructions with sprites. And then over the summer, me and a bunch of students thought, you know, that's actually, we know how to build state channels. Let's go build one. Let's build Bottleship, this two-player bottle, like two-player turn-based game. Let's actually see how well, you know, state channels work. You know, do they actually live up to their claims? And what we discovered in that paper was that, you know, state channels are really exciting, you know, instant finality, 
free execution, but they don't let us scale out. You know, they don't let us run smart contracts that are not already reasonably execute on the blockchain. So Bottleship didn't work in a state channel. That was like the outcome of that paper was, it was really frustrating, but also really a bit humbling as well. We now understand why they don't work. So now the research questions are sort of one, you know, how can we ensure, how can we make a game like Bottleship work off chain? And that's sort of the game theoretic problem that we're trying to solve now. So when you say doesn't work, yeah. let's describe Battleship and let's talk about why yeah. that particular game didn't work. Yeah, yeah. So this is really cool, actually. Okay, so you're both going to be my guinea pigs. Perfect. Okay, Battleship is a two-player game. You know, Alice and Bob, they set up the board. So what they do is that they place ships on the board and the counterparty can't see them. Now, every turn, maybe Alice will take a shot at one of Bob's Battleships. You know, as a, I think it's 10 by 10 grid. And Oz will say, Bob, I want to attack cell A1. Now, Bob has to reveal that either no bottleship was hit. You know, maybe Alice hit water. Maybe a bottleship was hit. Or maybe Alice sank his bottleship. Now, this is actually quite a long game. If you play the entire bottleship game, there could be over 200 transactions back and forth. You know, on average, there's probably 70 or 80. So that's a lot of moves going back and forth. Now, the issue arises in the following scenario. Alice puts down $100. Okay, so Alice and Bob, they cooperate. They lock money into the state channel. They install the bottleship game off-chain. They lock $100 each into the bottleship game. And now they're both committed to playing bottleship off-chain. Now, Bob says, oh, I don't want to cooperate in the channel anymore. So Bob refuses to sign any state update. Now what Alice has to do is that Alice has a trigger dispute, redeploy the bottleship game on the blockchain, and just finish the entire bottleship game on the blockchain. Now what is, why is that a bad case? You know, why is that a problem? Okay, so what I'm going to ask you is the following. Would you guys pay $24 in transaction fees? And would you wait around for 16 hours to finish the bottleship game on the blockchain? At a minute. 16 hours, you know, yeah. it, 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 you can withhold these types of transactions so you can potentially, you know, keep it going for longer, depending on whether yeah. or not someone other updates the next state. Exactly. So would you do that? Would you wait around 16 hours, pay $24 to win a $100 bet? No. Well, that just sounds like a design issue to me. I mean, like, meaning that, <laughs> like, if you do, if you design your contract such a way that she can't, she can't just instantly, you know, withdraw after a certain period of non- Non, you know, like create a, that could be a two transaction chess. solution. In other like, words, almost like speed chess, where you have to go within a certain amount of time frame, and then yeah, if yeah. not, then then it gets it yeah. Gets but the fundamental issue is that if you're playing this on the blockchain, you have to give some leeway for block, you know, block latency. Mm -hmm. You have to give some time period for the transaction to get in the blockchain, and that may be five minutes or two minutes or three minutes, whatever risk you're willing to tolerate, about how long it takes a transaction to get in the blockchain, and it's turn based. So Bob could just drag out his, you know, three or four minutes every time. Yeah, but if she prick. submits a a dispute to the blockchain, right? Can't that trigger the timer where he he could say, I, I, I'm actually saying she's not disputing. Yeah. Now, that well, would be a griefing issue, obviously, because then she could keep doing that. And then he could he could say no. And then she could keep doing that. And he could say no. And then and then basically yeah. force a draw, essentially. So one of the fundamental issues is that if there's a dispute in the channel, 
you know, the channel breaks down and you have to redeploy the game to the blockchain. There's, you, can, you can identify who triggered the dispute. We know Alice did it, but we can't distinguish why it happened. Maybe, maybe Bob signed the state update. Maybe Alice is pretending he never did. We can't actually realize, we can't understand, we can't figure out why the channel broke down. So now basically uses default to the blockchain and you just have to finish the game there. And then whatever way you design your application is how you could get out early. But I'd imagine first case scenarios or games are going to be quite draconian if they ever get implemented. And the fact that like if something gets disputed, then the other person wins. That's the easiest way to settle a dispute. And that incentivizes someone to make sure that they pay attention or they run the risk of uh, losing their money if, say, their internet gets turned off or something. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so if she could submit a dispute to the chain, and then if he actually is able to prove non some sort oh but he can't actually prove that there was no reason what the reason why you know like that yeah. she's wrong they can't question why the dispute happened yeah right. because That's... there's two parties and so there's really no way to actually make a proof that the other person received the information that you are actually sending and that's not your fault um yeah, so it's a fair exchange problem I think yeah. it's kind of funny that like even in coding these simple games we like we we, we go in thinking that, oh, this will be a simple game. The rules are relatively simple, but the difficulty is not in the game itself. It's in trying to keep or code or protect people from the most prickish possible scenario. It is right. It's like the humans that are always the problem, and we have to try and build governance rules and mitigations for people being pricks. And that's where the difficulty lies. It's not the actual game mechanics. Yep. And the only way to solve that particular problem, I'm still thinking about the specific issue, is is with a third party, which defeats the entire purpose of this. <laughs> exactly. So that's why Bottleship didn't work as an application. So the, the fundamental issue is that Bottleship doesn't work on the blockchain. You can put it in the state channel, but the worst case scenario is that you have to play it on the blockchain anyway. Ah, so, so this is where a combination of the two approaches between, say, uh, what was the term you used for it? Uh, plasma... <laughs> What's that? Plasma, a commit chain. Commit chain. So this is where the two approaches could kind of be a good marriage made in heaven. So the the commit chain is the arbiter. It's a third party, but it's a consensus third party, meaning that you can actually, ultimately, ideally, we would have more than one person being validator on these kind of networks. Um, right now, I believe that they're still pretty centralized, but... Um, ultimately, anybody could kind of join the validator pool. I would essentially, ideally you know, hope for. Um, and then you could actually just submit your no fee transaction to the state channel and your no fee transaction to the, 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 the um, commit chain that would act as the third party arbiter for the, the game. And then if you have a dispute, the actual third party can actually verify that you submitted and then that, that would remove the fee issue and the griefing issue. It would handle the lockups and then you could do the state channels on top of the commit chains. And that would actually prevent right. these issues that you're talking about. Right. I think that gives the hub this extra respect, extra power of arbitration, which maybe it's a good thing. You know, maybe you need a third party watcher for this to actually resolve the issue. Maybe you need a hub. But I think the ideal case would be, I mean, if you want to use a commit chain like Plasma, the ideal scenario that doesn't exist right now is that you'd run the entire game on Plasma. You wouldn't even need a state channel. You know, you just run it on this commit chain. And periodically, this hub commits to all the transactions on the blockchain in the current state of the game. Uh, but that doesn't exist right now. That sounds actually non-ideal because you would have this large growth in the commit chain to me. 
So when I when I when I hear that, I see like this commit chain, which is supposed to be this thin, very thin thing, would suddenly have millions and millions and millions of stored transactions on it, um, just because of two people interacting. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, this game might only have twenty two hundred transactions, but in a, a real world scenario, we're looking at maybe potentially millions of transactions between two parties, which means now the the commit chain would would need to deal with that. Um, yep. So we don't want that on the commit chain. But it does enable pruning on the commit chain, meaning that once that transaction is kind of closed, you can finalize the state, and yep. then you no longer have to store those transactional that transactional history yep, on the actual uh, actual chain itself. It's easily it's more easily pruned than than on a uh, it only finalizes to one transaction, which yeah. then well, gets committed the to the blockchain. You custom Plasma Cash. So in Plasma Cash, when you give me a coin, I need to have the entire transaction history. I need to convince myself that you're authorized to spend that coin and send me it. And no cost, because the checkpoint, you know, confirms the state, I only have to look at the state. I don't need the entire transaction history for any particular coin. They don't actually have a concept of a coin, per se. They have a balance. I've always thought this is kind of funny. I used to, I've been saying this as like a, like if I had to explain blockchain in one sentence, yeah. it's uh, merkalizing shit and trying to find ways to agree upon it. <laughs> and that's 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 literally what we try and figure out how to do in incredibly complex ways. And ironically, like when you started out getting into Bitcoin or doing your PhD in Bitcoin initially, it was because the cryptography was interesting. But yeah. it turns out Bitcoin only really uses digital signatures and a few other things that you know help with the cryptography. But uh, as we grow and grow and grow and build these layer two solutions, the way in which we use cryptography to try and merkalize shit and agree upon it is becoming more complicated. And it's, it's, it's quite novel. It's really novel. It's so exciting. I mean, what you're doing is actually, this is actually like one of the trade-offs between, you know, using a challenge response, like basically in like Plasma, you commit to a checkpoint and that's basically a Merkle tree. And there's this challenge response protocol where anyone could prove it's invalid. So that's really exciting. But this sort of works because of financial incentives. You're not going to have an invalid checkpoint because you're going to lose money for doing that. Whereas Snarks and Starks, we remove that problem altogether. That's like hardcore cryptography. You know, that's moon math. You get complete integrity of the checkpoint. But now you have this increased cost every time you do a checkpoint. And the question is, do you really need zero knowledge proofs and Starks when actually the blockchain already provides this integrity for you at a much cheaper cost? If that made any sense. Yeah, there's always, it's trade-offs. And I think now we're coming to the point of finding what applications need what trade-offs and then building the technology around it to fit the social context. Yeah. Which is something that hasn't been able to have been done before. This is something that I think is like, this is my main motivator for studying and pushing the, the, the like the furthering of this technology is because for the first time we're, we're not, we are, we're not forced to put all social contexts or relationships into a single, into a single hole, which is like basically centralized infrastructure. We're able to model things around, how the relationship should act and pick the correct technology to, to mimic that as best as possible. Yeah. Uh, how do you, where do you see, where do you see this going in the next five years? You said that's part of what kind of what you're interested in. This is like how this develops over time. I want to see this non-custodial payment network where all the nodes are only trusted the root payments and we could use any payment. We, we could use any, you know, operated commit chain. We could use any payment channel. And if I want to root coins anywhere in the world, I could do that. And I can't be censored for doing that. I think that would be so exciting. And I think that's in the realm of doing now. 
I mean, the commit students change stuff still needs more research and work, but I think that's within the, the next five years. We could actually see a real life alternative non-custodial censorship resistant payment network that anyone can join and operate. That would be so exciting. Do you see that as a evolution of something that currently exists or something that's going to have to be built from the ground up differently? I think given the technology we have now, we could build it. I think uh, technically we can do it. In terms of regulation and social responsibility and every other obstacle out there, that's the stumbling block right now. Technically, we can do it. Where, where can people start doing this? Uh, so like, here's the thing. It's like We want to encourage education, but we also want to encourage participation. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of people who listen to this program who would like to start participating in this sort of research. You might get inspired by this. Where do they go? How do they get started? For research, uh, I sort of follow the Cambridge uh, philosophy where you just get your hands dirty and you just start reading papers and trying to solve a problem you're interested in. So that's, that's really like abstract to say. So I think one people can do is one. So I teach this cryptocurrency class and all the lectures are online. So I've been doing this this semester from January onwards. And in London, our biggest class was 350 people, uh, 90% developers. So that's really exciting. I'd recommend they look at those lectures and the content because I always highlight research problems that need to be solved in any of the areas. So that could be one good place where they could learn about a summary of an area. So for example, we cover off-chain protocols. We cover problems surrounding on-chain scalability. So that's one place they could discover research problems. Then after that, I think it's mostly talking to people. So once you've watched lectures, you've discovered a problem, you've done some legwork, you know, you've tried to solve it yourself, that's when you start talking to people. And if, if a researcher can recognize that you've done work in the area or that you're trying to solve the problem and you're eager, they tend to reply and actually get back to you. It's like anything, isn't it? You know, someone just says, I have this idea, but you haven't done anything about it. You know, there's nothing really to talk about. So what's the biggest key problems we need to solve right now? for uh, cryptocurrencies altogether. Well, layer two. For layer two. I think the plasma stuff has the most research problems at the moment. I think channels are quite, in terms of constructing the channels well understood, how do you build a channel-based network and how do you route payments across the network? I think that needs a lot more research because right now the routing algorithms are terrible that are all being implemented. Mm -hmm. um, Third-party watchers. So one thing we haven't alluded to at all is that off-chain protocols have this new security assumption that you have to be online, synchronized with the network, and you have to watch out for malice disputes. What we need to see build are third-party watchers, and that's what we're trying to do, actually, so I can talk about that later. One of our research papers was called PISA, which is a countable third-party who you could hire. And if PISA cheats you, you can make them lose a security deposit. Uh, so we need third-party watchers for this network to actually you know, run and work and operate and practice. And then for the commission work, we need good commit chains. I mean, the the the, the new custom I've spoken about is pretty good, but that has some problems. You know, your transaction is not actually confirmed for 36 hours. That's pretty annoying in terms of, you know, trusting the hub. The Plasma stuff needs more work because now I have to store this massive transaction history with Plasma Cash. You know, that's not a really good assumption to have. I think the commit chain stuff in terms of constructions and building it is where all the really cool resources at the moment, if you're a protocol designer. So let's talk about PISA then. Um, what, what, what is that uh, and what are you guys doing and what, so what's should, going on there? Yeah, so PISA is this accountable third-party watcher. So let's just say Alice and Bob, they have a payment channel. Alice has $1,000 and now she wants to go offline. 
You know, she could close the channel, but maybe she doesn't want to close the channel. Maybe she wants to keep this open for a few days. Maybe she's part of the Lightning Network, where the idea is you have these long-lived channels that never close. So what she could do is hire Pisa. She sends Pisa, you know, a commitment to the latest state, then she can go offline. If Bob tries to close the channel on an earlier state, you know, maybe he tries to reverse a payment and get the $1,000 back, Pisa should respond on, you know, Alice's behalf. Pisa will send the latest state, prove Bob is cheating, and then Alice is guaranteed to get her 1,000 coins. So this is called a watching service. So Pisa is accountable in the sense that if Pisa cheats, Alice can come online, she can see the Pisa cheated, and then she can prove to the Pisa contract the Pisa cheated. If the Pisa contract's convinced, the third party gets penalized and they lose some security deposit for doing that. Is that an Ethereum-based thing or like how, how, where's so, Pisa? So Pisa was initially designed for state channels, you know, with Ethereum in mind. And the accountability bit works the best on Ethereum. So now what we're looking at is we got funding from the Ethereum Foundation, the Ethereum Community Fund and the Research Institute, you know, they get Pisa in the practice. So Pisa actually works for most off-chain protocols. It works for Bitcoin Lightning Network. Uh, it works for Ethereum payment channels, the state channels. So it'll work on Spank Chain, Raiden, Counterfactual, several, Connect, several other projects that are building that. And it also works for Plasma, a new cost. You know, if the Plasma Hub put, like, tries to steal money from you, Pisa can respond on your behalf and prove the checkpoint's invalid. So that's really exciting, actually. Pisa just works for any off-chain protocol. That's awesome. That's fantastic. Yeah. But I guess, so this is something that just dawned on me. How does, how do these kind of solutions work for private coins like Monero? Like how do they, how do they work with these kind of things? Or do you need this transparency in order to execute these layer two solutions properly? Um, that's a good question. So I think if you're going to do something like Monero and ring signatures, you could probably do that still. You know, you just lock up the coins and you say, these coins are locked up until, actually, I guess for Monero is quite hard, isn't it? I think what you, maybe you'll lose some privacy there. I think you'll have to identify that it is a channel and that the coins have been put in and then the coins are taken out. And then you do another ring signature to get more, you know, privacy from that. Uh, but I don't think it works at a Monero out of the box, actually. That's quite hard. And actually, one of the misnomers is that like Layer 2 doesn't give you privacy. So a lot of people advertise like the Lightning Network as a privacy-preserving solution, but that's not actually true. So what do I mean by that? So it can obfuscate payments quite well. But one issue is that if Alice and Bob have a payment channel, and I want to work out you know, the current balance in the channel, you know, does Alice have one coin? Does Bob have one coin? What I can do is a simple conditional transfer. You know, I try to set up a conditional transfer with them, from maybe 10 coins, nine coins, eight coins, seven coins. When they accept my conditional transfer, I now know how many coins Alice had. So you can leverage these techniques as a side channel to try to break some privacy there. So I don't think layer two gives you privacy out of the box. So there's, there's this actually is a pretty important question or important, important topic. What is privacy? Um, there's, there's logical privacy, um, which is, basically what Monero is. It's a, it's a layer one privacy solution. It right. basically, you know, that, that is that or layer one, layer zero, whatever you want to call it. It is the base base in its core is privacy. There's yeah. network layer privacy, which is things like Loki network are trying to accomplish where they're trying to do that, that sort of stuff. 
but there's also institutional privacy. And that's what I think that layer two solutions can provide. Meaning that yet yeah, only if they layer it, layer themselves deep. And this is why it's important to me that the court and rules brought back into the subject matter, uh, brought back into a, a core fundamental like uh, tenant of what a, a, uh, a um, God dang it. What do you, what do you call it? Uh, uh, not plasma, commit but chains. commit chain. Thank you. I got to get used to that word. I'm going to, I'm going to drill that in my head after this, a, a commit chain would, would need in order to provide institutional privacy, meaning that, yeah, an institution might not have privacy on the base layer. So you'll know what the ultimate finances of say a, um, so basically a, uh, um, a, um, you know, a, a yes, you might not. So like, you'll have some transparency on the on the root chain. So you'll know what say Google owns as far as assets, and then Google would have their own layer two solution, which would basically enable say their finance and accounting to maintain the high level institutional, um, you know, uh, truth of their system, and then you allocate budgets to the departments that need it. And the only way you gain access to those particular budgets is through some sort of permissioned chain system, you know, some permissioned sort of asset flow system. And, th and that's that's what I'm really thinking of when I think privacy in terms of commit chains um, and even state channels is that it's almost institutional, um, but it's not. So, for instance, if you create yeah, yeah, a state yeah. channel, you don't know what occurred in that state channel unless you are a participant of that state channel, right? That's a that's a type of privacy. And so I think it's very important that we we differentiate what privacy means because it's too broad a term yeah. to 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 actually say that, you know, uh, it doesn't preserve privacy because it does. It just depends on what your definition or what your use case of privacy particularly is. I think for commit chains, what we normally would consider privacy, like if you have a central hub that's coordinating all the payments, the privacy notion there is that the hub should not have any idea who's sending the who, so who's the sender and receiver, and what value is being transferred as well. So there's two solutions that were developed. So this isn't for a commit chain, this is a payment channel hub. There's a hub with several channels and people discovered how to do privacy there. So one's called Bolt, B-O-L-T, and that's sort of mostly designed, I guess, for Zcash. Uh, so that's that has privacy in mind, but to the best of my knowledge, Bolt only supports a hub with like one leaf channels, and it can't join a network. You know, the hub can facilitate special conditional transfers, but that's from the top of my mind. I don't know if that's true or not. That's from what I remember off it. The other one was Tumblebit, that was by uh, Ethan Hellman, where it's more like a tumbling service where all the transfers get botched and send you know, back and forth. Um, so that were built with payment channels in mind. For Plasma, so far no one's really considered privacy from the hub to the best of my knowledge. But I think it's even easier to do there. If users assume the whole point of the checkpoint is that it orders transactions and the hub doesn't really care what the transactions do, then I think you could have some privacy notion there as well, where maybe they're just ordering Z, uh, Zcash transactions. As long as they're ordered correctly, then the hub doesn't care. But that doesn't exist yet. That's more of a you know future couple of years problem away. Future work. Future work. Well, yeah. I mean, there's other ways too. For instance, smart contracts themselves, there's an impractical solution on main chain, but a practical solution on layer two solutions uh, uh, layer two networks called Mobius contracts, which um, mm -hmm. 
which may enable that kind of level of privacy that you're talking about, but wouldn't work on the main chain because it's too costly um, in the storage, but you could do it totally off chain on layer two and it would be completely efficient and more make more sense there. Yeah. So if you consider Movius, Movius is a ring signature approach. So there's two like competing ways. One, there's a shuffle. You have N parties, maybe five parties. Either they do Movius where they all put coins into a black box. Then one at a time, they take a coin back out. Or you have a, a shuffle protocol where you know you have this, the coins in a bag, you give it to each party, they shuffle it, they give it to the next party, they shuffle the bag, and eventually everyone gets the coins at the end. I think they're both the competing approaches. And what's really cool about state channels is that people can see coins coming in, they can see coins going out, but the shuffle protocol or the mixing protocol is run completely off-chain. So that's really cool. And in fact, our engineer, uh, Chris Buckland, he built one called ETHMIX for a state channel that was trying to do something very similar to this. So the whole point there is that it makes the tumbling protocol basically free to execute in the best case. So I'd like to uh, mix it up a little bit here and change topics quite drastically. Um, you teach a lot of courses. Uh, you've been around for a long time. You're a professor, arguably a blockchain expert as far as anyone can be called that nowadays. Yeah, that technology <laughs> hasn't been around long enough to have full-on experts yeah. um and and like i've i've taught classes in, in blockchain and bitcoin or whatever uh as well and i've taken almost all of them that are available not yours yet i will now uh and i'm quite interested in how people approach this problem to new people from a pedagogical standpoint to try and um help it click easier uh, and uh, to build the fundamental like parts that come together to make this unique technology work and how it's, how it differentiates itself from like previous ways of doing things. And, uh, I'm, I'm kind of interested into how, like, what are your fundamental tenets to approaching this to people? And I'm assuming that's changed over time because starting with Bitcoin, you, I, I used to teach people, teach people a certain way. And as the technology evolved, I kind of slowly moved it into different ways. How do, how do you do this? So it really depends on the audience. So I mostly teach technical people like developers. You know, people have never, when you heard of blockchain, but they have no idea what's going on. The way I've been teaching it recently is that first I go over several different perspectives. So I look at it from a data structure perspective. You know, why is the blockchain an interest in data structure? It's because it's a cryptographic data log. It just lets me recompute a database that you already have. You send me the blockchain, I recompute the database. Now we both have the same database. So I look at it for like one from a data structure perspective, it just lets me compute a database. That's it, the blockchain. The second part is distributed systems. How am I guaranteed that is the one and only true blockchain? How do I know you haven't computed a random blockchain as it's given me it for the crack? You know, how do I guarantee that the blockchain I have, the database I've computed, is actually the same database everyone else in the world has? So that's distributed system perspective. There's a consensus protocol that allows us to do that. And what's really exciting is that from a distributed system perspective, there's been 30 or 40 years of research where they only consider three or four computers, CFD, and they all try to reach the same decision. Nakamoto consensus, Bitcoin, and Ethereum flip the table. They change how we completely look at this problem. Basically, what's really cool is that it prioritizes liveness. And as long as there's one miner minting blocks, we'll always keep making decisions in a distributed system manner. And that's really exciting. We can condo 99% of all peers going offline 
and we can still reach this decision. Then after I go through that, I talk about, well, now we have this global, conceptually, this bulletin board that everyone has a copy of. What can we build with that? You know, what are the ex exciting applications there? The first application was Bitcoin. You know, we can build this financial ledger. I can send you coins. And everyone in the world can agree that I sent you coins. Then I talk about Ethereum and I say, what's really exciting about Ethereum is that instead of just financial transactions, we could all deploy programs in this network. And now everyone can execute the same program. So what can we build with these global single programs in the world? Then I talk about cryptographic protocols, you know, like auctions, e-voting, digital contracts, Tamagotchis, you can have a crypto kitty. You know, you can do whatever you want. It's really exciting from a crypto, you know, building cryptographic protocols. And then I talk about security. You know, why is this interesting from a security perspective? Because of the biggest bug bounties that have ever existed in our lives. You know, 40 lines of code, millions of dollars of assets on the line, and they keep getting hacked. So that's how I start the lecture. I talk about all these computer science perspectives and really highlight why it's in multiple fields. Then I give them a high level overview. You know, what are keys? Why do we send transactions to this peer-to-peer -peer network? Why are the miners competing to solve puzzles? You know, the whole point of this puzzle is that we can elect a leader, they can publish a block and tell everyone how to do the same botch update. You know, the miner creates a block, they send it to the network and every single database will perform the exact same botch update. That's the whole point of the, the mining puzzle. Then after that, you know, it's done. That's like a rough technical overview of why this is really interesting from a computer science perspective. But it's very long winded. Yeah, so basically, it's field creation, though, because like every single topic you've discussed is its own sort of field from consensus. And, and, and you're just giving a topical overview of very deep fields. And it's, it's yeah. hard to cover those in, in any sort of detail at this point, because the, the space has grown so tremendously. Well, it's the same thing as like being a web developer, or a computer programmer back in the 80s and 90s and all of the different differentiated fields you can you can measure in now. And there's 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 one thing that I think that um, you might touch on that you didn't didn't hit in your gloss over there that I think is crucially important from the data structure perspective, is that um, you end up with a succinct hash that can be passed around that gives you all of the properties of the things that you want out of that out of that database or out of that yeah. out of that out of that linked database. And since from exactly. since it's computer networks, you need something small to pass around to agree upon. If you don't yeah. have that, then none of it works. Yeah, yeah. So what's really exciting is that cryptography gives us, actually, this is what I love when I teach about cryptocurrencies. It's really good to motivate people for cryptography. When people think of cryptography, they always think of, you know, World War II, secret codes, spy, fiction, <laughs> you know, passing, pass, passing secret messages. But really in cryptocurrencies, for Bitcoin at least anyway and Ethereum, cryptography is not used for privacy at all. It's actually used for integrity. You know, why am I guaranteed to have these coins? Why can no one take the coins from me? Unauthentication. Only I can spend the Bitcoin. Only I can produce a digital signature. It's non-custodial. No one can take my money away from me. So that's really exciting for me. And fairness, for that matter. I mean, the proof of work works on the assumption that the hash is random yeah, and exactly. evenly distributed. If that wasn't there, then proof of work wouldn't exist either. Yeah, and that's just build a secure puzzle that nobody can cheat. Yeah. That's integrity. That's exciting, yeah. Yeah, I was also curious, like, uh, like, I I was very excited when things like the the ledger journal started started coming online when they, when they first introduced or announced that they were going to do that, and people yeah. were were doing courses and people were doing their PhDs like yourself in cryptocurrency because 
it wasn't a thing that you could do when I was when I was learning about this type of stuff. And uh, it, it it dawned on me that it still might take a long time to get to the point of being a, in the regular curricula of universities. It may start in the position of doing your PhD and pushing the boundary of these types of things. One, because it's multidisciplinary. It's very multidisciplinary in ways that things have never been before. And two, it changes drastically and very rapidly. And so uh, a course that you do one semester may be completely wrong or outdate the next semester. Yeah, and that's very hard to do when you're trying to build curricula because more often than not, if you're a professor and you want to teach the same course, you work really, really, really hard to build it. And then you do, you know, minor updates every semester to try to figure out how to tweak it. But if you have to redo the damn thing every semester, then it's not going to really be sustainable because people get degrees that are outdated by the time they finish their degree. Yeah, I think that's very true. Um, so we teach it on the master program. So KCL, you know, King's College London, Imperial and UCL. We all have our own courses on the master programs that we teach. Uh, the undergraduate, I don't see it getting on the undergraduate any within the next five, 10 years. That's a very standardized, you know, solid topic that yeah. is sort of- standardized This shit isn't topic. changing. <laughs> yeah, this shit isn't changing anytime soon. But yeah, you're right. So when I was making my course this year, some of my slides had like tweets and articles from the day before. Like, for example, I was preparing the, the lecture about minors and why minors can be dangerous and why we have to hold minors accountable. And guess what happened the day before? Ethereum Classic got attacked by miners. <laughs> and I was like, well, this has to be included. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So that was in my lecture in the next day. I was like, this is, that happened like so often this semester. <laughs> yeah. You're definitely not, you're definitely not lacking in, in material to kind of bring into the lecture to make it more live for students. What's been your reaction from the students? Um, have they been receptive? Have they enjoyed it? Have they gone on to do things? Do the people try and yeah. come? And do yeah, like three research with you. Students. Are they asking you which coin should they buy? Yeah. Three hundred fifty students. Like, what is the what is the ratio of people who are just curious to those who are engaged? Yeah. So as you, there's there's two points here. So there's a small master class during the day. So they're the real master students who you know are going to get accredited for taking this course. Uh, there's twenty eight on that class. One of them's an undergraduate. They forced their way onto the class in the university. You know, they they went to reception. They forced their way to get in. And I think the students like it. It's actually, they told me it's one of their toughest modules that they take. Because, you know, I don't go easy on them. They're, <laughs> they get really good content. Um, so I know one person works, is going to work for a bank. And now they're trying to get in the blockchain department of that bank. So they're actually, they're enjoying the course and hopefully it'll impact their future career. For the evening course, it's crazy. I mean, the Q&A is just insane. Like, I have this two-hour lecture. And I'm struggling to finish my lecture because they keep asking me questions. So I think in, the, in that course, there's maybe 100 to 150 core group. You're really, really super interested. Maybe the other 100 are more curious and they're just showing up, you know, they get a feel for what's going on. But yeah, there's this core group who just, like, we finish the lecture at nine and they stay there for 40 minutes afterwards doing Q&A. And that doesn't get recorded actually, Q&A. But yeah, it's really intense. I mean, I'm exhausted by the end of it. Oh, I have man. a beer. That, that excites me because like I, I did my, my PhD in computational physics and that mm. was not the scenario that I lived through. Um, it was it was it was brain draining in a lot of ways. Very interesting, very curious. But like you didn't have that type of engagement from the students. Like I didn't go home and then read all the physics books or read the news and things like that. And yeah. those who did were not the majority. And I think what we're seeing in this because it's it's 
directly applicable to people's lives. The, the, the gain in knowledge has potential monetary value quite drastically in terms of understanding what to, what to kind of invest in. It's teaching people how to invest. You're getting this interaction from the students uh, on, a, on a much, much deeper level, which I think is an incredibly exciting thing. Well, I think it also talks about, so the big boom for the internet is the accessibility issue, is that it was very easy to build stuff and show people and have people interact with it and, and play with it. And with computational physics, the barrier to entry for that kind of doing shit is, is, is very high. Yeah, it is. It's tremendously true. high. And so with this, I think the enthusiasm is that people can immediately get interacting with these things you're talking about you they can literally go home after your lecture and start doing shit yeah. do. and like that's fantastic yeah i have all these like so i have these homework exercises and i get like emails about the homework exercises now they're like oh Pat, i didn't understand how to do this piece of the code i didn't understand this question then i chat with them about it what i also want to mention is what we do once a once a month we have this weekend boot camp for developers so it's saturday and sunday it's two-day event and it's free. All this is free, by the way, you know. So they, they come from, and basically, we I do the morning lectures. I prepare one-hour content and it lasts for three hours because it's a Q&A. Uh, since it's been made free, the Q&A is just insane. Then in the afternoon, Lawrence takes them through a coding exercise. So they learn how to write Solidity. They learn how to do ERC-20. They learn how to break smart contracts. And the students love that as well. Now we have this, like, really cool little... Over the past year we've been doing this, we have this really cool like blockchain developer community now that we've all trained. You know, they've came to our classes and sort of picked it up. So there's like an underlying level of uh, of knowledge there that like you can you can that the it stays on key because you most of the people who are contributing to that have a certain threshold of knowledge that keeps them there. Yeah, exactly. That's really interesting. I wouldn't mind trying to try and help facilitate that with our community and, and, and get them involved as well. Yeah. I think that's Very a great cool. way to kind of wrap this up, yeah. Paul. Did you have something else? Um, no. Uh, so, I, I mean, is there anything that we should have asked you that we didn't ask you? Stealing your question, Corey. It's quality. What me? Why does it ask me? I don't know. Uh, something you wanted to talk about we didn't ask you? I mean, maybe I could ask you guys a question. Maybe that's bad. Oh, yeah, tables. let's, let's reverse roles here for a second. <laughs> yeah, let's you're, do it. Yeah, what's your vision for the next five years? What keeps you interested in this space? You know, why are you cypherpunks? Colin, you first. Okay, because you know you're going to be succinct. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, look, I, I, I don't think the next five years is it. I, I have dialed back my expectations on that. When I first got into this space, um, I was gung ho. I was, I was, um, I, I believed that things were going to accelerate extremely fast. I thought we would have plasma by now. Put it to you that way. I thought we would have a fully functioning plasma chain. And people would start using them like right after I read the paper in no 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 August of 2017. Um, I, uh, I I was really excited, and I thought within a year we'd ha we'd see it we see a fully functioning plasma chain because you know that kind of stuff. Um, I, I and I started by the way full time. I, I got into it in maybe 2015. I started full time. Uh, Ethereum's what brought me in. I wasn't terribly interested in Bitcoin, um, but Ethereum Ethereum excited me. Um, I read the white paper before it even came out. I was an early adopter. I, I knew Ethereum was the way things would go because when I read, I, I learned about Bitcoin, I was like, this is great, but what it needs is basically Ethereum. And then they, I read the Ethereum white paper. I was like, aha, this is it. I thought it would go a lot faster. Um, that said, it is going at breakneck speed. 
Um, I just didn't know what breakneck speed actually was. Um, and it was actually my expectations were too optimistic. I think in five years, I don't think we're going to be seeing the level of adoption that I um, think we're ultimately the, I want it to be ingrained ultimately in every aspect of life. Um, that's the ultimate goal. And that's more of a 10 year to 15 year outlook. Um, but in the next five years, what we're going to start seeing is institutional trading of assets. And I think asset serialization and asset exchange on an institutional level is going to begin in five years. Not, not be pervasive, but they will start it, meaning that we will have um, everything from uh, you know major, major core assets. We might even start with just digital assets um, being serialized and exchanged through some sort of uh, blockchain mechanism. Um, but I don't see the adoption level that I, I, I want until the next 10, 15 years. So where do I think we're going to go? I mean, layer two solutions are pretty much the, the key thing here. And I think layer one improving that is going to be highly important. But um, the main thing that I'm curious about and I really care about in this space is whether or not we can decouple the data structure of a blockchain from the consensus mechanism of proof of work meaning that we have a major issue here. Um, it is both a UX and a, 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 a um, you know, um, a uh, just practicality issue, meaning that if I have to sync the blockchain, even in a light client, in order mm -hmm. to adopt, we've got a problem. Um, and I don't think layer two solutions are going to be the solution for that because there's problems on all levels of the, the network with regard to that. And so I'm excited by things like um, Definity which um, I'm not sure where they are now, but based off of our talk with Manoush, um, I believe that uh, decoupling and also maybe Avalanche, but I feel like there's unseen problems with Avalanche still, so I'm not sure about that one yet. Uh, but I do think Definity has some teeth, at least in their core concepts and the core idea behind it, um, in decoupling the data structure from the current state. Um, so you have the current state and then you have the record of state and coming to consensus without the full state of the system in a highly reliable way is absolutely going to be something that would be a game changer. Yeah. And I should also mention Definity have the Justice League of cryptographers. Yeah, no shit. <laughs> One thing I want to hire the people, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, they have. Now, I want to add, like, you mentioned about like 15 years away. So I did this like, I had to do a Bitcoin talk for like these high school students and there's like 200 of them. So I started the talk with, you know, who's heard of Bitcoin before and everyone raised their hands. Then I asked, you know, who's actually bought Bitcoin and about 20% of them did. And they're 15, 16 year olds. Wow. Well, you know, that's interesting. I, I, uh, I, so I was traveling a lot and I had to have somebody watch my cats in my house and that kind of thing. So I had, I had a buddy who had a, a younger brother. He just turned 18. He was taking an off year. You know, he's, working at this pizza joint, really nice guy. And he wanted, you know, I said, come move into my house, take care of my stuff while I'm traveling. Um, he brought, he said, I don't want to live alone. So he brought in his buddy um, and his, his buddy made over a hundred grand off of Ethereum and Bitcoin as an 18 year old, actually technically a 16 year old. Um, by now, now he was 18 and this kid was already into crypto and I didn't know it until he moved in. And then he found out what I did and he was like, Oh my God, like, but he doesn't understand the fundamentals. He's not even, he can't even program, but they know what this stuff is because there's no barrier to entry and it's a value gained asset, meaning that they can actually invest. 
as 16 year olds, yeah. what kind you know, like what you can't do that. You can't invest in the stock market as a 16 year old. So they're, they're definitely that's in the space. That's why we're yeah. one generation away. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So if I had to come off of that, um, I did my I did my PhD in, in exact quantum dynamics, and I often get questions about um, what's the deal with quantum cryptography or quantum proof cryptography, and I often tell them that in, in five years I'll know what questions to ask. Um, and it's a very similar story here with how I feel about blockchain. In five years, I'll know what it's going to be called. I know what questions to ask and I know what problems we'll need to work on to get to the point of it actually being ubiquitous many, many years down the line. Um, and I'm in it because of the thing I mentioned earlier. Um, I did a talk on this a while ago, I think at the Texas Bitcoin Super Conference uh, about social implications of, of infrastructure and how humans interact with each other based on the technology they use to interact. It's kind of like that whole saying, the medium is the message. If you're confined by, a, by the way in which you communicate with someone, then um, you're never able, actually, able, able to actually communicate properly. And I think blockchain technology actually gives us options to build, um, build an infrastructure in which you can then build applications on top of that properly model the social context of whatever you're trying to do. And that fascinates me. I really, really, really want to find ways to use technology to make humans be better humans and not be subject to the technology they're using. And I think this is, this is the start of that, which means it's going to be a long time till we get to a point where we're doing that properly. And humans kind of suck in a lot of ways. And so we're going to have a lot of hurdles along hurdles there. That's pretty much why I'm here and, and where I think we'll be in the next, you know, 15 is just trying to absorb as much of it as possible so that I can ask better questions um, as I learn more and more stuff. And I think anyone who's who's done a PhD understands that um, it's not about what you know, but what questions you, what, what how good of a question you can ask. Critical thinking, yeah. So I think that's, cool. that's, that's where we're at. I think that's kind of a, a great way to wrap up the show. So thanks for coming on. Thank you, uh, listeners, for joining it. If you like this show, click like, tell all your friends, share it on Twitter. You can find me at Corpetti on Twitter, Colin at, at Colin Couchet, C-O-L-L-I-N-C-U-S-C-E. Pat, what is your what is your Twitter name handle? Oh, I use Patty KCL. Patty KCL? Yeah. Is that P-A-D-D-Y or P-A-T-T-Y? Yeah, P-A-D-D-Y-K-C-L. All right, you can find him there. And uh, share this with everybody. Uh, join the BitcoinPodcast.com. Uh, there's a Slack button. You can join our Slack to join the conversation. We talk about this and everything else uh, there, as well as uh, finding ways to get onto the live show and ask questions. So, uh, And let's beg for money a little bit, too. Yeah, if you want to <laughs> so give us money, are... you can give us money. That works, too. Sponsorships yeah. so are great. We accept donations, but we also are looking for sponsors. So if anybody really likes what we're doing and really enjoys the program, feels as though we are the target audience, be it for technical recruiting, be it for advertising a product that you think is very interesting in the space, be it for advertising your educational your educational programs, you know, let us know. We would be happy to uh, entertain the idea of uh, having you sponsor. Entertain is the correct word, because if it's shit, we won't push it. 
Correct. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but guys. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Okay. Cheers, guys. <laughs>